0: Like we mentioned in the beginning, we're going to have probably more presentation like this. So I really appreciate Dr. Dwayne. Okay. Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne gracias. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And este es su primer año en el instituto también, pero está muy con su y ayudarnos a todos. He's very passionate about his career. The first yes. year, from the Unified District, but he's really passionate about what he did So I'm not gonna say he would. Yo, ya no digo más. El va Yes. Okay. yes. Okay. Good morning, everyone. My- change my hat. Oh, change the hat. Okay, we're gonna <laughs> give it a few <laughs> seconds, but I'm just gonna reintroduce myself very briefly. My name is Dr. Dwayne Bryant. I'm a first-year school psychologist here in San Jose Unified School District. Um, actually, excited. I love this placement. I love the kids. I walk around campus and I just see them happy. I love kids being happy. I grew up in North Carolina, east coast, southern east coast part. So I'm on a different side of the world, so to speak. But I'm loving it I'm enjoying it. And what most people don't understand is that though we come from different places, we have similar experiences. So what I see here with students is that they kind of grow up in a similar way that I grew up. That's how I connect. That's how I'm able to provide services to them. So today we're going to speak about autism. We're going to speak about some few things, uh, the emerging trends. Yep, all of that. He's going to help me out with my presentation. So we're going to give a couple of seconds to set up, and then I'm going to jump into the presentation. Yeah, that too, first slide. He wants me to go to the first slide. (laughs) <laughs> most definitely, most definitely. All I was doing was introducing myself. Um, I was basically saying that I'm from the East Coast. I'm from North Carolina. It's, it's, the, it's considered the South, but in conjunction to here, it's pretty much the East Coast. Um, and essentially, I grew up in a different place, but from what I'm noticing that just because I grew up in a different place, we have similar upbringings. I see the students. I connect with them based on that upbringing, so I'm able to foster relationships with those students. I'm able to see their issues, what they go through on a daily basis. So that's how I connect, that's how I provide my services. And I'm happy, I'm actually enjoying this experience, getting to know the environment, getting to know the school, the culture, everything. I'm trying to learn Spanish, really trying to learn Spanish by the end of the year. So if you see me, say some, teach me some words, teach me some phrases, and I'm gonna try to learn by the end of the year probably be good, but not great, you know? <laughs> but uh we're going to get into the presentation now. I think when everybody's settled, everybody's set, the audio is working, everybody can hear we're good? Good? See? Okay. All right. All right. Okay, so as I said before, we're going to talk about some of the emerging trends in autism. By show of hands, how many have heard of autism? How many understand it, know what it means, has a clear interpretation of it? We have a few. All right. So if I say something wrong, correct me. <laughs> correct me. Alright. I don't know if you... Can everybody see this? It's a little... The light. The light. That's better? Alright. And I'm going to try not to be in your way, but... What is autism spectrum disorder? It's very broad. It's a spectrum. A lot of people have their own interpretation of what it is, what it looks like, and all that, and it's grandiose. But by definition, autism is a neurological development disorder characterized by varying degrees. It's just a lot. It's a spectrum. Difficulties with social interaction, verbal, nonverbal communication, and repetitive behaviors. So I don't know, some of you may have seen. These type of behaviors, seeing these things, maybe you've seen them in your home. If a student or a child displays these type of behaviors, that does not mean that they have autism. Even though autism is a spectrum, a lot of these things are somewhat common. You see them on a daily basis. So what distinguishes these behaviors from autism and normal behaviors? And that's what this presentation is gonna get into. It's a lot of technical terms in here. But I'm going to take my time and explain those terms. And I left these terms in here because it's important. It's very important for you to see these terms, see these phrases, because when you get into these meetings, when you get these documents, these are the terms that you're actually going to be seeing. So you have to get used to understanding what they are. Get used to seeing them. because These are the terms that they use to describe the child's behavior. All right. And some of the causes. Hasn't been any research, scientific links to any vaccinations, even though that's become debatable as of late, you know, being vaccinated is causing so many different disorders and diseases, but it's no real research that speaks to that. Research does find that autism can be linked to glucose, gluten, some type of link that says, hey, if if a child's diet is filled with this, it could potentially lead to autism. Potentially. So don't be alarmed. If you eat crackers, bread, or anything with gluten in it, does not mean the child is gonna get autism. But one of the more common traits is genetics, genes. A lot of times research is speaking to the child being born with this, these genes inside them that are linked to autism. That is the more solid cause. But a lot of times research is, is everlasting, is, is, is forever evolving. So we have this explanation now, but 10 years from now, They'll tell you something else. It's lead in the water. But it's no true link. And it manifests itself in different ways. Neuroatypicality. One of those words I told you about. All right? So in layman's terms, in simple term, it's the difference in the way the world is perceived and understood. It's basically how your brain, this child's brain, interprets information. How they understand that information. How they use that information to see the world. Got it? That's pretty simple, right? They just, they could have said that instead of this right here. But some of the core features of that, some of these other words joint attention, theory of the mind, cognitive. He's gonna help me again. And singular focus. All these things in combination really speak to this atypicality how we perceive the world, how we understand information. Now, how many of you have heard of the the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health? That is like the Holy Grail, the Bible for psychologists and therapists alike. We use that to figure out everything, to put everything in categories when it comes to disabilities and diagnosis. So some of the changes over the years is that some of us have heard of Asperger's. That's a more, that was once deemed the more high-functioning version of autism. High-functioning. Very smart. Doesn't really like to be touched. light sensitivity. Repetitive behavior. But was a genius in the classroom. Can score the highest of scores on exams and tests. Now, as of 2013, the updates of the DSM-5... Not so much. Asperger's is not necessarily a, a diagnosis that's recognized now. Now we have the social communication impairment. And that's broken down into different sections where it's behavior, uh, repetitive or restrictive behaviors. Those are the more so characteristics that we identify autism with now. So they broke it up into categories. And we're going to get into those, those categories as well. But as you can see, there's been changes. Kind of how I said in the beginning. We think we know, but with more research, more time, more things come about. And I understand that could be confusing, right? When When you find out, okay, these are the things that are happening or that are defined by this diagnosis. And then, oh, I'm seeing this in my child. I'm seeing this in my student or my niece, nephew. Then five years later, they change it. All right, this is a very wordy slide, and we have uh, slides right here if you want to follow along on the end of the table. But some of the criteria changes, they're really persistent with the social aspect of it. You know, in our society, we place high value on being able to socialize, being able to communicate with one another. And in school settings, it's so important because that's how we exchange information. One of the highest, highest indicators for most educators for autism is being able to socially communicate. And it's persistent deficits in this area that really drives the criteria for autism. So it manifests itself across settings. So this can be in the home when you're trying to communicate chores. You're trying to, hey, let's eat, let's come to dinner. Hey, go play with friends. School setting, hey, these are the instructions for this assignment. You have homework, put your homework in your bag. So when a student is not receptive to those things and they don't give you eye contact, they don't give you hand gestures and things of that nature, those are all aspects of the social impairments. Those are some of the signs that you look for when a student is diagnosed with autism. And that's some of the main things. Developing and maintaining and understanding relationships. I know a lot of times I have students who can't really find humor in things. Uh, we'll tell a joke or a student will tell a joke and a student who's diagnosed with autism, they'll take that joke very personal. It's very hurtful. But it's a joke to the other student. So a lot of times these students don't understand social cues, uh, so certain phrases, certain common phrases that we use on a day-to-day basis. Uh, these students are very literal. So they take it for face value. Exactly what it is. And this blurb right here, that's basically all this blurb says. <laughs> all right, continue. because you know, it's a very, very, uh, it's a spectrum. So it's a lot of different things that go into this diagnosis. So we're gonna look at re- restricted and repetitive behaviors. Interested in, in your interest in activities, uh, a child's association with a, with a bear, a block, a race car. Some of those things, even a t-shirt. Some students they want the feel and the texture of a shirt. They will only wear that shirt. they will only wear those jeans they will only wear those shoes. They will only write with this pencil. It can even get so severe that they won't uh, as far as hygiene the texture of a toothbrush. A lot of times people think that you know that some students may have bad hygiene that 's not the case it 's really about the texture it 's really about the comfort and how it feels the the how they stimulate themselves. But that's more so restricted and repetitive patterns. And a lot of students who have autism, you know, I come in a class and I may have to have my books right at the edge of the table. have to have my pen right beside my book and it has to be symmetrical before I can even focus on anything. And to some people who aren't, aren't diagnosed with autism, they don't understand it. They don't understand that this is my process. This is my routine. Without this routine, it's difficult for me to even understand or even see the world the way you do. Stereotype of repetitive motor movements. Some of you may have seen some students who are diagnosed with autism, they may rock. They may rock, they may tap, they may jerk their leg. They may even pull their ear. And these are all related to the sensory. As I mentioned earlier, those repetitive behaviors, the repetitive actions, it's more of a calming technique. These students, they they want to soothe themselves so that they can actually focus on what's going on in the task at hand. And to some, it may be viewed as different, abnormal. But this is how that student really calms themselves in a very hectic environment. I'm pretty sure all of you sat into a class. Or in the morning when students are outside. You may see some students sitting off to the side. All the students are yelling, screaming, running. And for a student with autism, that's overwhelming. So you may see them sitting on the bench rocking. It's a way to calm and soothe themselves. Again, it may look different. It may look abnormal. But these are the things they need to do to see the world the way you do. All right, see this guy right here? (laughs) See this guy right here? This is like the body. Different parts in the body, I said you move, you have highly restricted patterns of behavior. Certain parts of the body, we look to soothe ourselves. So again, start with your arms, can be your ears, can be your legs, can be movement, you can be standing. To give you a visual of that, most students can exhibit hyperactive behaviors. Some students will get up and run. Some students may not be able to sit in a chair. How you differentiate that between normal or just a slightly elevated behavior or a active child is that it's very excessive and very persistent. It's almost... Continual, it's, almost, it's very repetitive. A lot of, I work with a lot of students who are diagnosed with autism, and I see it every day. It's 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 really being able to control boundaries and respect boundaries as well, but being able to be in a setting where they feel safe, secure, and comforted that they don't have to get up and run, that they don't have to uh, self soothe. So it's all about understanding the body and what that and how that may manifest itself. And it's the opposite of that, too. They may not be hyper, they may be hypo. You may have students who withdraw, don't say anything, who sit quiet, who are off to themselves. They may not be yelling, they may not be running, but they may be sitting down, pulling the ear, chucking the leg, but they're not bothering anybody. So when we say it's a spectrum, it's truly a spectrum. And I know it can be very difficult to point it out. It can be very difficult to pinpoint these are the specific things that my child is doing. And again, I'm going to reiterate this a couple of times throughout the presentation. It's about persistence. It's about the repetition of behavior. It's also about the intensity. But more so about the consistency of behavior. All right. Symptoms. How do we point it out? What is the surefire way to make sure that we're not just throwing out buzzwords? Because now, if you think about it, diagnosis is really uh, commercial now. A lot of people will say, oh, my child has autism. My child has ADHD. What does that really mean? What does that look like? How do I know that that's really true? How do I don't know that my child is not active? Symptoms for autism usually occur very, very early. We have a lot of mothers in here. You have an extreme connection with your child. My mom, to this day, can tell me things about myself. I'm like, how does she know? How do you know from a phone call? So, if a child is not talking by a certain age, 16, 18 months, it's maybe a problem. We need to look into that. Child isn't walking. Child isn't making gestures. Child isn't looking, making eye contact smiling. These are all things that you got to take note that something may be develop developmentally wrong or developmentally going on that I need additional services to pinpoint. And again, this a big blurb. That's what it means. All right, now we're going to get into what we talked about earlier, the different dimensions and classifications and... Of autism, so we're gonna look at the social communication disorder. Persistent difficulties in social use of verbal and nonverbal communication is manifested by the following: deficit in using communication for social purposes, such as greeting, sharing information, such as uh, being able to to catch social cues in the appropriate setting, i.e., jokes, i.e., phrases. The Impairment is really your ability to somewhat code switch, to somewhat know, to be able to understand how things are said, how things are communicated across different settings. And that is one of the extreme difficulties uh, with youth. Because think about a child with autism. We have to understand the development of a child just in general. It's really difficult to be in a school setting and have to deal with aging. My body's changing. Uh, I have friends who may be more developed than me, less developed than me, trying to find my place. So mentally, it's a lot going on with that child. And if they are experiencing any of these symptoms, it's going to be very hard for them to communicate and express themselves. And though it may be frustrating, though it may be different, though it may take a lot more work, it is truly necessary. And basically, I explain all of So I'm going fast. (laughs) So another point I want to make is the limited and functional effectiveness in communicating with partners. I want to actually double down on that aspect. In school now, we do a lot of group work. We do a lot of social activities. And sometimes it's very difficult for students with autism to participate in those activities without the assistance of an aide. Again, we talked about running around in class. We talked about being... Not able to be focused, to attend to tasks, to follow concrete instructions. A lot of times, these instructions, these tasks, these activities, they really don't align with how that child has figured out a way to understand the world. And it's a hard job for the teachers, it's a hard job for the aides to really speak to the child where they are if you don't fully understand the diagnosis of autism. Whew. So again, when can autism be diagnosed? Research has shown that they can be diagnosed as early as one years old. Early as one years old. Again, that developmental stages where a child is not smiling, not responding to eye contact, not doing gestures all those things speak to something developmentally and neurologically going wrong. Again, no big smiles, no joyful expressions. No back and forth sharing of sounds. Again, that goes into the verbal development, the communication aspect. And any loss in speech. You no know, babies babble. He's helped me out with my presentation. He's helped me out with my presentation. So paying attention to those signs is key. My favorite part. Who can diagnose these type of disorders? And I actually want to double down on this portion of the presentation because it's very important for parents to know that teachers, even parents, even educational advocates, they're not necessarily qualified to make these diagnoses. The people who are qualified to make these diagnoses are trained mental health service providers such as psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists pediatricians, people who specialize in this area. Again, autism and all these diagnoses are buzzwords now. People are throwing them out without true understanding of what they are. What do we need? A lot of times when I have a case, I get a referral from a parent, I send home rating scales. And those rating scales are truly important. I must stress to you, if you get a packet of papers from this school, it's probably gonna come from me. So if you get a packet of papers, I need you to truly fill those forms out because that's the information that I need to make an accurate diagnosis across settings. So I'm gonna give parents those papers, I'm gonna give teachers those papers, those scales, then I'm gonna go into the classroom and I'm gonna make my own observation. I'm gonna go on the playground, I'm gonna make my own observation. And then I'm gonna take all those data points, put them together and see what what those data points speak to. Am I seeing just uh, influx of behavior in the home? Am I seeing an influx of behavior in the classroom? Now, my own observation, what did I see? Did I see a child's inability to connect on the playground? Did I see them not being able to follow directions or connect in the classroom? And I take all that together and I make my judgment, I make my diagnosis. I bring all of those to the team, to other specialists, such as the academic or the, the resource teacher. And we all speech and language pathologists. And we all put our data points together and agree or disagree on a particular diagnosis. So I stress to you, it is so important to put all information, all information that speaks to the development of the child on those forms. Truly. It makes all of our jobs a little easier. It may take me a longer time to write it, (laughs) to write it up, but that doesn't matter. We get the the accurate information we need to make the most appropriate diagnosis. And now I'm going to get into some school-based treatment. So now my child has been diagnosed. What next? What now? I'm going to share with you some things that are effective based on research. I'm going to share with you some things that are effective based on my own practice. Things that I find that really are truly helpful for the students. Now we're going to look at packages. These are the 11 established treatments for students with autism. We have the antecedent package. We have the behavioral package. We have modeling, naturalistic teaching, scheduling, self-management. We also have joint attention intervention and peer training. And no worries, I'm going to break those down. So the antecedent. This focuses on modifying the behavior, modifying the environment before the behavior occurs. And this has been shown effective from students, all school-age children from 3 to 18. And essentially what this do, what, how this is manifested is in a teach model, cues and prompts, and a lot of visual aids. Some students may have charts. You may go in the classroom and you may see a laminated piece of paper with graphs, with pictures. And that's how you communicate to that student. When, it's, when they need a break, they need to go to the bathroom. They take that piece of paper and they point to it. So that kind of alleviates the issues with communication. It allows you a different way to communicate and understand what that child is saying and what the needs of that child are. Now the behavioral package, behavioral is based on behavioral principles. Howard, What are you doing? How can I assist you with the behaviors that you're displaying in the classroom and outside the classroom? Now this package it evaluates what happens before and after the behavior. I don't know if many of you have heard of applied behavioral analysis, and that's essentially what this is. This is basically looking at what happens before. The behavior, looking at the behavior, and what happens after the behavior. And we use a lot of principles for this model to shape the behavior. We look at trials, we look at, we do a lot of observations, and we use all that data to pinpoint what are the top two, top three behaviors that we need to focus on as a group within the school and within the home. The comprehensive behavior treatment field. This is is a more intense service. So remember when I was speaking about those students who get up and run, those students who really can't necessarily focus in the classroom? We use this model right here, and this is most effective between the ages of of more so one because you can't do anything from two months, but you look at from one to nine. And the services you can give them in a variety of settings. You can do it in a clinical setting, and an academic environment. And this is often done between the teacher and the student. So it's a more of a one-on-one type situation. Joint attention intervention. This specifically focuses on the developing skills of giving attention to, um, in, the, in the variety of settings. So basically your ability to uh, focus on one thing and visually express Give tos, look, gaze, being able to look and, and, and involve yourself within that classroom, within that environment. And this intervention is effective for children 1 to 5. Modeling. Now, this is one of my most favorite forms of intervention, modeling. This works for children with autism. This works for children with behavioral problems. This works for just children in general. This even works for me as an adult, modeling. Basically, I show you what to do. I give you steps, and you do it. Very simple. Similar in the home where I need you to wash dishes. I want you to stand here, I'm going to wash dishes, rinse, put them up. I want you to take out the trash. Trash bag, tie, pull out, dumpster. Very, very simple. A lot of people don't think that this is effective, but it is truly effective because what we as human beings in general, not just people who are diagnosed with anything, people in general, we do more of what we see and less of what we are told and what we hear. And I find this especially effective with boys. Especially. A lot of times boys, we don't like to read. Don't. I didn't like to read myself as a kid. You give me a page full of Words? (laughs) Words, <laughs> I'm sliding it, not looking at it. I need you to show me. So, you have these students with autism, it's, it's, it's very good to, again, going back to the graphics. Having a graphic page with instructions, but also showing and modeling that behavior to that student. Highly effective, in my personal and professional opinion. All right, naturalistic teaching strategies, and it's really self explanatory natural teaching this is really the it's on the premise of students have to learn from their environment if you're in a classroom regardless of what structure that classroom is you have to be able to learn so we're going to use that environment and focus all of those environmental factors on strategies and how to teach you how to engage with you how do you respond to certain situations that come about in that classroom and this is effective between the ages of one and nine. Uh, it's basically a lot of generalized skills. How to, how to use a pencil. How to go to the pencil sharpener. How to ask to go to the bathroom. Some of those more general things that we all do. Peer training. It's, it's really modeling. It's really modeling. You pick a student in the class who has good behavior and say, hey, you need to act. You need to pick up some traits from this student. You see how this student raises their hand before they yell out? You see how this student puts their work in their book bag to be taken home? Peer model. And this this really speaks to a type of learning where students learn from a group-based approach. They learn from units. They learn from their peers. They learn from their environments. Schedules. Schedules are so important, this is one of my favorites. If I didn't have a schedule, if I didn't have a sound schedule, I would be all over the place. So, students with autism, they work really well on schedules because they know what they're gonna do, they know what day they're gonna do it, and they know who is gonna be delivering that service. A lot of my students now that I work with, they will come, if I miss a meeting, they will come up to me, hey, Dr. Bryant, I didn't see you today. I'm sorry had another meeting, it went over, I'm gonna come get you tomorrow. Are you sure you're gonna come get me tomorrow? What time are you gonna come get me tomorrow? Have you talked to my teacher? And these are the signs that I know, this this is how I know it's important because they remember. Once you get these students on a schedule, that makes their life easier. They don't focus on anything else. They focus on what they have to do, when they have to do it, and how they have to get it done. Very, very important. So if you can get a student on a schedule, whether that be in the classroom and home, it increases their likelihood to be successful across those environments. And it's effective between three and 14. But I truly think that is is a way larger gap than research says. Self-management. As you can see, a lot of these are kind of comorbid. A lot of these go together. So scheduling, modeling, self-management. You can kind of teach a lot of these strategies all in the same system so being able to manage behaviors communicating what communicating to that student well if you start to feel overwhelmed you start to feel rigid start to feel like i can't be in this space hey raise your hand hey get, get a pass take five minutes It really speaks to you being able to manage your own feelings, manage your own behaviors, and that is so key for students in an academic environment because truthfully, a teacher has a hard job. She has to manage 20, sometimes 30 students in one class. She or he. So a student being able to understand their body, understand their emotions, target and identify their behaviors is very key. And you can do that through speaking directly to what that child is experiencing. And I, again, I really, I really champion open communication. A lot of times we don't want to speak to our child, our student, our, our sisters, cousins, about what they truly have going on. I found that when students truly know what they have, if they know I have autism, it's not such a stigma around that. They understand, hey, I have autism, but I, I, I can do all of these things. I may need help. I may need some assistance in restructuring my schedule, my day. But I still can do the same thing that everybody else can do. So it's effective, in my opinion, that we speak directly to what's going on. But don't minimize or don't, not even minimize, but don't make it, all about the diagnosis. Don't make it all about autism. Make it about these are the steps that you need to take to be successful. This is the help that you need. Because it's not truly about the the diagnosis. It's truly about how can I help you be successful. And last but not least, we're going to go over the the story-based intervention. This is connected to modeling. Having a story. Having something that a student can read, can look at, and say, and learn from. They can understand and pick those skills up. That's, <laughs> that's normally uh, depicted through graphic novels. That's normally pr- depicted through uh, visual aids, stories, scripts, and even comic book conversations. I feel like that's highly effective when you're working with students who perceive the world differently. All right, now if you have any further questions, I encourage you to go online. Google is king and queen these days. Uh, they're good for resources. They're not good for diagnosis. I would not recommend going on Google and, 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 and searching a diagnosis and say, oh, one, two, three, my child has it. That's, I don't recommend that. But what I do recommend is going on Google, looking at parenting tips, looking at uh, educational strategies, looking at things that can help your child once your child has been diagnosed, or when you see your child as being, uh, having difficulties in certain areas. But here's some research, go to the National Autism Center, Let's put that in Google, they have a lot of different resources, they have a lot of articles. I have a few articles uh, up here, It's a couple of tips, parenting tips for students with autism that you can follow. If you have any questions, I thank you for listening early this morning. And now we can open it up for questions. <laughs> Love is blue sometimes, baby. But suddenly yes. it changes. Discussions. Let us say the truth. You are now. Let awesome. alone every night.